Good morning, MacAv. Great to have everybody here. Again, if you're visiting with us online, man, we welcome you. Uh, we pray God's blessing on you, and we pray, pray that God's Word would penetrate your heart to either bring you to salvation or to keep you in the sanctification process. Um, my name is Matthew Rojek, and along with my wife, Betty, we've been at Mac uh, coming up on 10 years, and it's been an absolute joy to serve with Pastor Leon, the elder board, and this community of believers. I wanted to thank, man, Pastor Chris. Wow, I think I got all my tears out, I hope. Uh, that usually doesn't happen, but man, that was a wonderful time of worship. Thank you very much. And I wanted to thank Pastor Leon, uh, giving me opportunity to preach, and thank Pastor Leon and the elder board for uh, encouraging Pastor Leon to put together these preaching seminars that he's been doing on Saturday. I told him one time, I think after the first or second time, that I think this might be the favorite, my favorite thing that's ever, that I've ever participated in at Mac. And I would encourage you, whether you want to preach or not, I'd encourage you to get the packet that he's developed and to listen to whichever ones that he has provided online, uh, just for your personal edification, your purple, uh, personal Bible study. It would be well worth the investment. Man, it's been a rich, rich, rich time. So thank you, Pastor. Thank you, Elder Board. Uh, can we open up in prayer? Oh, Jesus, what a time of worship. We do come before the altar, and Lord, we lay ourselves bare. Lord, that you would receive the sacrifice of our praise, that you would receive the sacrifice of our lives for your glory and for your honor. Lord, speak clearly through your word, Lord God, that the ears of the congregation, that the ears of those listening online, Father God, would be pricked, Father God, towards salvation, towards sanctification, and towards service. We ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen. So again, we're talking Philippians 3, verses 1 through 11. Uh, I'm going to do a brief run-through of 1 through 9 and really spend a majority of our time on verses 10, on mainly on verse 10. Today's sermon is entitled, How Do You Know What You Say You Know? How do you know what you say you know? 1997, Father's Day. My son James, 10 years old, Martha, 12 years old, were swimming. It was a Sunday. Uh, after they were swimming for a while, Martha came in, and after about a half hour, she started complaining about her ear, and she said that there was some water trapped in her ear. And so Betty and I tried to figure out what the problem was, and we realized that Martha had taken, we used like a wax earplug because she had problems with her ears, and she put this wax earplug in her ear, and she pushed it too far, and it went into the ear canal. And she was starting to kind of freak out. She was only 12. And uh, so Betty and I tried a couple of different things, hot, cold. And when it came to the point that I said, I got to take her to the emergency room. And Betty said, well, I've got one last idea. She said, why don't we go see if we can get one of those little bulbous things that you suck mucus out of a baby's nose when they're too young to blow their nose. And Betty will say that I said this. I'm not sure if I said this or implied it, but... I said, that's the stupidest thing I've ever heard. And so Betty, not to shrink back from my sarcastic wit, said, well, I don't think it's so stupid. She said, if you go to the emergency room, you ask the doctor if that was a good idea. 
And she said, if he says it was a good idea, will you do my dishes for two weeks? I spit my hand. I reached out and I said, I'll do them for a year. So the one thing that I found after a year is that Dawn dish soap is by far the best working cleaner there is. So what's my point? My point is the sermon title, How Do You Know What You Say You Know? I knew medical procedures. No, I didn't. The doctor did. And I thought that I had some great answers, when in reality I was a fool, and I had no idea what, we were, what I was talking about. I'm reading a book, and I think I even mentioned this before, by A.W. Tozer called The Crucified Life. And in this book, he talks about veils. He said, God's face is always smiling, but that we don't always see him smiling because of these veils that are before us. These things that influence and cloud our vision of his smiling face. And so we're going to talk about some of those today. Again, as I mentioned, I'm going to go through verses 1 through 9 and give you a, a quick synopsis of them. And then we're going to really focus on verse 10. So Paul, we know that the book of Philippians is a book of joy. We've been talking about that every single sermon. And here Paul starts out in verse 1 and he says, Finally, brothers, rejoice in the Lord. And for me to tell you this again is of no trouble for me and is a protection to you. And Paul answers right off the bat, I think, a question that was in the Philippians' mind. Paul, you're in jail. You're suffering. You're not able to preach. You're in pain. If somebody doesn't bring you food, you're not eating because that's the way that it was back then in prison. And the Philippians, I'm sure, in the back of their mind, it says, how can you be joyful? And Paul says, hey, it's no problem because we remember, we remember elsewhere in Scripture, Paul says, whether I'm abased or whether I abound, I have learned in whatever state that I'm at to be content. And Paul just restates this in another time, in another way, to rejoice. And it's no problem. It doesn't bother him that he's in jail. His care is for the congregation. And then he ends it by saying, and this is a protection for you. And what is that protection? That protection is if you and I are in pain or sorrow or we're in abased circumstances where we are perplexed, we're crushed, we're pushed down, and we don't remember eternity, those sorrows can bring you and I to despair. And Paul is saying, remember eternity. This life is but a breath. I understand your pain, your sorrow, but rejoice in the Lord, for you have been purchased by Christ Jesus himself. And then he says, watch out for dogs. Watch out for evil workers. Watch out for, and my version says, those who mutilate the flesh. And again, thank you, Pastor. I use in commentaries, and I look up, and the commentary says dogs generally is a, a, a term of sarcasm the Jews would use towards the Gentiles. Paul's warning them, be careful of them, that their philosophy doesn't influence you. Watch out for evil workers. Chapter 1, Paul talks about these evil workers who preach Christ out of rivalry, out of envy, thinking to make Paul suffer more. 
you and I know them every day as evangelists or preachers who have taken the word and perverted it. Those are evil workers. And then Paul ends with those who mutilate the flesh. And I believe this is just like a sarcastic term that Paul uses towards Jews who thought circumcision was one of the keys to salvation as they would know it in the Old Testament. And then Paul says, but no, we are the right circumcision. We don't glory in ourselves. We glory in Christ. And the circumcision he speaks of is that that Nicodemus came to Jesus and said, hey, man, what must I do? And Jesus says, you must be born again. Nicodemus is confused. What do you mean? Do I enter my mother's womb? And Jesus goes on to explain to him what is spoken of in two other places a number of times in the Old Testament where the prophets say that God is going to take out of you a hard, stony heart. And he's going to put in you a new, soft heart of flesh that you may serve me. You and I have been given the opportunity to be born again. Christ killed sin. And the actions that we're going to look at that Paul's going to said that he was able to boast about before were actions, but still from a broken and corrupt heart. Christ not only killed sin, but he allowed you and I to have a circumcised heart, as the scriptures tell us. A circumcision that's greater than the circumcision of the flesh. Because the circumcision of the heart, not only do we have righteous motivations to create actions that we can glorify God. And then he goes on to say, um, he goes on to basically lay out his accolades. And he starts with um, circumcise the eighth day. Which, man, if you're going to get circumcised, it's got to be the eighth day, according to Old Testament law. And then Paul says, of the nation of Israel. He wasn't a foreigner who moved into Jerusalem or Israel. He was an Israelite. And then he says, from the tribe of Benjamin. And if you know anything about Benjamin, just finished Genesis. I just finished Genesis. Jacob blesses his sons. Benjamin is the youngest. And he talks about Benjamin in a warrior-type manner. He calls him a wolf. And I believe Paul like resonates with that as we see that he persecuted the church. Paul was a warrior for Yahweh as he knew him through these veils that we're talking about. But also in the line of Benjamin was the first uh, king of Israel, Saul, and also, also a great book. Pastor was mentioned about the Women's Council. If you've not read the book of Esther, she was in the lineage of Benjamin. Go read that book. Man, wonderful book. And then he says, a Hebrew born of Hebrews. And what's he saying? Man, I'm 100% Hebrew. I'm born a Hebrew of Hebrew of Hebrews. His ethnicity was not mixed. He was 100% Hebrew. And then he goes on to say, regarding the law, a Pharisee. And what he said there was, I just scored a 1600 on the SAT. I'm a Pharisee regarding the law. Regarding zeal as persecuting the church. Remember, the zeal of the Father consumed Jesus as he overturned the tables. Here Paul's saying, man, I'm going to great lengths to torture, kill, and imprison 
those who he thought were in violation of Yahweh and the covenant that Yahweh had made in the Old Testament. And then this last one, it blows my mind. What does Paul say? He says, concerning or regarding the righteousness of the law. And my version says blameless. Can you name anything that you're blameless in? Man, the best I can do is maybe a C- minus in anything that I can think of in my life. And Paul says blameless. And then what's Paul do right after this? He tosses all those things aside and he said, I count all of my Oscars, my Nobel Peace Prize, my triathlon, my SAT scores. I count those as filth, save because I've known and I've come to be known of and by Jesus Christ. And then to make sure everybody understands him completely, not only did he throw all of those things away, that was his filter, his vision of who Yahweh was, but then he says, and you know what? I count everything else as loss. You know, working for the Boy Scouts, whatever other little accolades he had hidden. He said, everything I count as loss. And then Paul goes on to say, and this is where I want to camp out, my goal is to know him, to know the power of his resurrection, to know the fellowship of his suffering, that I might be conformed to his image in death, that I might attain to the resurrection of life. So Paul's goal is to know him. Didn't Paul know him? Sure he did. But he knew him, again, through a veil of strict Jewish law, pharisaical law and custom. The word know, as it's used here and numerous times throughout the New Testament, is a very interesting word because it has two distinct components, but it's the same word. The word that Paul uses here is the same word that when Jesus said to the disciples, hey, how many fish and loaves do we have? And the disciples went over and counted them. They knew how many fish and loaves they had and reported that back to Jesus. So it's a very practical knowing. But it's the exact same word that, is, um, that Jesus uses when he's looking at the Pharisees and the scribes as they came to him to tempt him. Hey, should we uh, be paying tax to Caesar? It's this man. He knew the hardness of their heart. It's the same no. So if you look at the application of Paul here, Paul is saying, as he says elsewhere in Scripture, I want to know Christ as I work out my salvation with fear and trembling, which is what you and I are to do as we take the Scriptures, we apply them to our lives, we find out the direction that God wants us to do, and we do good works, practical things, as unto the Lord, as a proof of our care and our love for Him, and as a circumcised heart wants to act in accordance with God's will and desire. But then he also talks about in Ephesians 1, this Holy Spirit supernatural revelation of Jesus Christ. 
And that's how Paul wants to know him. He wants to know him both. And as he acts out his faith and compassion and kindness, and as he receives revelation from the Holy Spirit, hey, don't go to Malta. So I mentioned the book that I'm reading by A.W. Tozier and these veils. I want to talk probably about three different veils that I see as influential in today's society that to me are, can be very detrimental. And the first one is emotions. They are given by God as gifts to you and I. But they have a very specific purpose. And there's also a place where they become a detriment to how we see things. Mercy, compassion, sorrow, fear. Pastor spoke two weeks ago about anger and how anger can lead to righteousness. But anger also led Peter to cut off a dude's ear. So we see that it can be used for good or for bad. And again, to me, this is how we know what we say we know. We have to use the right filters, motions to be used in the God-given way. And man, hear this, okay? I believe Jenny's got this up as a slide. Emotions are not to be used as a judge for the truthfulness of a given situation or as a verifier of God's truth, where emotions trump those things. James in 1.8 says that they're fickle. As he says, a double-minded man, uh, which, which way do I go? His emotions have him wreaking havoc on his mind. It says he's unstable in all his ways. And James is speaking about how that mindset towards actual truth and how our living by faith defines and proves who we really believe, God or circumstances. And here, remember the title of our sermon, how do we know what we say we knew, say we know. We could say here, how do we know who we say we know? How do we know Christ? And the question that I asked, so does God really care about me? Does God really care about me? Or is his declaration that I'm worth more than a sparrow trump that as we choose emotion over what God has spoken? Or when Peter, in frustration or anger, said, Jesus, no, you're not going to the cross. And what does Jesus say to him? He doesn't put his arm around his shoulder. Hey, Peter, you're a little misguided. What does he say? Get behind me, Satan. I'm assuming most everyone here, I think it was, uh, uh, the books were given out when Betty and I came down here, the book, When Helping Hurts. Another great example. As I'm reading through that, I realize compassion, mercy, and those things that God has given us as emotional gifts can turn sour when used inappropriately. If they're not mixed with the spirit of God's wisdom and discernment, they can be detrimental. 
And then the two scriptures, I believe Jenny's got those up, Philippians 4, 6 through 8, Proverbs 25, 28. Let's settle on the Proverbs one. A man without self-control is like a city broken into and left without walls. Now, think with me this picture of a city broken into, broken apart and left without walls. There's no safety. There's no foundation. There's no protection. That's what happens when we are without self-control and we let our emotions run ragged over the truths that we have as God's word in our lives. Do not let those things get out of hand. Do not let them trump. The Philippians, do not be anxious about anything, but by prayer and supplication with thanksgiving. Thanksgiving, why? Because we know the Father has our interest at heart. Because we know of eternity. We can be thankful in the midst of sorrowful and grievous situations. Allow emotions to have the proper place God has given us them for. Another veil that I think that can be very influential in a negative way, a positive way as well, but we're talking kind of in the negative way, and that's an intellectual veil. Uh, there was a pastor named George MacDonald, middle, middle 1800s, end of 1800s, and he wrote this, I firmly believe people have hitherto been a great deal too much taken up about doctrine and far too little about practice. The word doctrine as used in the Bible means teaching of duty, not theory. I preached a sermon about this, and that's George talking, not me. We are far too anxious to be definite, to have finished, well-polished, sharp-edged systems Forgetting that the more perfect a theory about the infinite, the surer it is to be wrong. The more impossible it is to be right. Now what's the pastor saying here? He's saying that the God who created the universe, the solar systems, stars, giraffes, ecosystems, DNA, and you and I try to define him in sentences, and we make those sentences equal to God's Word. And they are so cut and dry that when somebody steps out of line of what that theology is, we're sure and quick to scold them and to say, no, 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 that, that, that's not what... That's not what Scripture says. I am troubled by today's Christian mindset where everything has an answer, a formula, and a correctly defined way of thinking with more emphasis on correct doctrine than what the Spirit of God Himself is saying or doing. The church's mindset, when it's set on these things alone, I fear we miss God. This is what Jesus so often spoke about in rebuke of the Pharisees. Remember this place where he chided them for swallowing a camel and straining at a gnat. That's exactly what George MacDonald is talking about. 
someone breaks the smallest little bit of their law or your and my personal offense, and we're sure to quote scripture to them that we've taken out of context or some dogma or theory of the unknowable who has no beginning or an end. I mean, he's, he's a grain, we're a grain of sand. He's, he's the universe. How can we define him in these little, neat, orderly systems? I think sometimes conservative Christians are thinking is frightened by the possibility of God moving and that we as frail people might become too radical, too emotional, too Pentecostal. I mean, that word's even taken on a bad rap. I want to be Pentecostal. I want to be where Peter was. Man, that I can be a coward and then all of a sudden, whoa, I got filled with the Holy Spirit. Go, let's go do some street preaching. I'd love to be talking in tongues. So I want to say there's a balance to be found, and that balance does not come by ignoring or superficially assenting to what we say we believe, but virtually ignoring the New Testament verifications of God's mighty acts. We must know him both in a theological sense and a Holy Spirit-directed sense that can and will contradict logic. Jesus spit in a guy's eye, right? What would happen if you and I did that? Man, we'd be hauled off to court, right? Do you remember he turned his back on a woman and called her a dog? Remember he was late a couple of times to heal people? What ended up happening? They died. That doesn't fit into our neat little boxes, but he was being directed by the Spirit of God. Theological and Holy Spirit driven. And there's a number of scriptures. Jenny, I don't even remember if I asked you to put those up. But again, uh, we've got a PDF that's been prepared if you guys would like to see some of the scriptures because there's some other scriptures as well that weren't up there. Uh, you know, just a couple of them. We know, we all know Romans 12, 1 and 2. Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind that you may prove what is that good and acceptable and perfect will of God. 1 Peter 5, 8. Be sober-minded, be watchful, because your adversary, the devil, prowls around like a lion, looking whom he may devour. 1 Peter 1.13, therefore, preparing your minds for action. Be sober-minded. Set your hope fully on the grace that will be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. And then this last one, man, I, I don't know, I didn't know how to word it, but um, a veil of how others have packaged the gospel to us. And as Paul said a couple of times in his teachings, this is Paul speaking, but I think I have the mind of God. This is Matthew speaking, but I think I have the mind of God. I've talked to a number of the members of the congregation here, especially the younger members, who have ought against their parents. And what you consider that they did a poor job raising you in the Christian faith. I'm going to tell you, if they brought you Christ and took you to church 
and gave you the gospel and prayed with you as they knew best, please call them and thank them. Don't chide them for having done things wrong because I promise you, you will commit the same errors that they did. And your children are going to tell you of those as Martha and James have told Betty and I, Mom and Dad, that's not really Scripture. That's your preference. And Betty and I had to say we're right. So please, thank your parents if they raised you in a Christian home. I wasn't. And what I had to go through before I became a believer was miserable. As packaged by others, as other believers, as they bring things to you that might sound scriptural, but are unscriptural, Popular evangelist. We talked to you before about evil workers. There are popular evangelists, preachers, who are telling us lies. They're perverting the scripture. And forgive me, pastor, but I'm going to tell you what. You can't take the pastor's word. If you guys don't know the scripture yourself, you're in trouble. Pastor will tell you the same thing. So... In regards to your parents, in regards to how this thing's been packaged by others, chew the meat and spit out the bones. Do the practical thing. Chew the meat, spit out the bones. Discern principles and preferences and realign them with the truth of Scripture. And as you've heard, don't throw the baby out with the bathwater. Okay? Now, as I'm concluding, there's two things that I really, really, really want you guys to hear. So please pay attention to this next one. I wrote down, be a self-feeder. And what I mean by that, 25 years ago, there's a guy named Al Cresta with a K. He was uh, on the popular radio station, and he was a talk show host. And I've never heard anyone as intelligent, as brilliant, and as kind as this guy. He would have people on the show constantly whom he was diametrically uh, opposed to scripturally. But he was kind and thoughtful and engaging. He didn't interrupt. He'd ask questions, but he would speak the truth of God's word to them in love and show them where they were wrong. But he, he wasn't rude. He wasn't arrogant. And this happened about 25 years ago. Al Crested decided to become a Catholic. And so he was leaving this radio station to go to another radio station. And I remember a specific time I was listening, and someone called in and said, Hey, Al, how can you become Catholic? They don't teach the Word of God, and they're not going to feed your soul. And I'll never forget this. He said, I learned years ago to become a self-feeder. And all I'm telling you, church, is if you're not taking time every single day, and I mean every single day, to read the scriptures, to embed them in your soul, to spend quiet time with God, and I don't mean a five-minute quickie, I mean burying your soul in the gospel, so that when Leon or Matthew or your parents say something, you're able to have the Holy Spirit's wisdom and the Scripture's wisdom to discern right and wrong, preference and principle, the truth of the gospel. You have to be 
a self-feeder. And then one last thing I, I kind of skipped over a little bit earlier, but I want to give you two more examples. Uh, everybody probably knows C.S. Lewis. C.S. Lewis, I listened to a sermon by John Piper, and John Piper relates that C.S. Lewis didn't pay attention, didn't read the newspapers, didn't pay attention to local news. And I'll be honest with you, I subscribe to that idea. There's another guy named Smith Wigglesworth, late 1800s, early 1900s. He was an uneducated, illiterate plumber who got saved, got full of the Holy Spirit, and started having revivals. He couldn't read. His wife taught him to read the scriptures. And one day, because there was, you know, he was having, um, whatever you call them, conferences, prayer meetings, and people were getting healed. And they even say that there were people raised from the dead under his ministry. And uh, so his, his wife taught him to read, and that's the only thing he read. And a newspaper reporter came to interview him, and he said, Hey, Sonny, what's that under your arm? The guy said, A newspaper. He said, Well, you're welcome to come in my house. Newspapers got to stay outside. And you guys might say, Well, boy, that's a little off kilter. And I would say, No, it's not. And especially with today's bombardment of media on us, and I just ask you a simple question. Do you spend more time reading God's Word and in prayer than you do on Facebook, Twitter, social media, whatever it is, reading the news? I mean, I, I'll be honest with you, I, I, applaud, I, I applaud Smith Wigglesworth for that. How do we know what we say we know? How do we know who we say we know? So this is the last thing, and, and this is, again, to me, the second point that's just critically important. But to me, the whole crux of it boils down to this. 2 Corinthians 13.5, Paul tells us to test ourselves to see if we're in the faith. The best way to tell if how you know what you say you know is correct is to compare your thoughts, your actions, your intentions to the scriptures. Scripture's got to win. Your emotions lose on this. Your intellect loses on this. Your friends, your parents, your pastor's opinion loses in comparison to the truth of Scripture. Remember Paul telling the Corinthian church, he says, you know, we see in a glass dimly. And Paul's telling them, we can't know the infinite. And yet, the same Bible, the psalmist tells us that God is a light unto our path. And in John, I think it's 14, you guys know this, probably one of my favorite scriptures, Jesus says, man, it's imperative that I go away so that the Father can send the Holy Spirit who will speak to you those things that he's heard the Father say. So we have these veils. We need to test ourselves. And I would, I would challenge you, congregation, don't be foolish and walk down a path that you're not discerning if it's the correct path. And I... I hesitate doing this, but I'm going to tell you, remember the scene in Matthew where there are sheeps and goat before Christ. And Jesus says to the goats, I don't know you. And they're all, wait, wait, wait. Man, we moved to Detroit. We spoke in tongues. We healed. We led literacy programs. 
We rebuilt housing and communities. We even taught Sunday school. And what's Jesus say? He says, depart from me. I never knew you. Saints, we need to be paying attention so that what we know is accurate and what we know is truthful. This is a constant sanctification process of our flesh, of our mind, of our spirit, of our emotions. And if we don't take the time, as Paul says, to test ourselves, man, I, I fear for us as individuals. Please heed the warning of Paul. And I want to ask you, I think, three or four questions. Matthew 7, 13, 14, Jesus says, narrow, straight is the road. And he says, few find that road. Few find that road. Are you walking the straight and narrow path as prescribed by the scriptures? Luke 9.23, Jesus says, You want to follow me? Take up your cross. Deny yourself. Do you know what your cross is? Are you asking God? Believe me, it, it's... It's a terrible thing to ask for your cross. But he tells us to, and I would encourage you, it's the best thing for you. Find out what your cross is, and every morning, put it on. Jesus says you must lose your life in order to find it. Have you lost your life? And then let me, two more things. Matthew 13 Verse 46, Jesus tells of a real estate developer who owned properties all across the city. And he was well uh, diverse in his retirement plan until he found one piece of property that said there was a treasure on it. And they call it the pearl of great price. And against modern wisdom, he put all of his eggs in one basket and went and bought that land and received the pearl of great price. Have you done that? If not, will you do that? Now, for those of you who are listening, I would be a fool to think that all of you are believers. And so I want to offer you an opportunity right now. What are the veils that hinder you from coming to Christ? What are the veils that you have that hinder you from serving Christ in the way that he commands, demands, tells us to? Are those veils, well, I was born in the church. I was raised a Christian. I've been going to the same church my parents did, my grandparents did, or a host of other things. Paul had accolades that he trusted in until he got knocked on his bottom. We see in a glass dimly. So if you're out there and you're wondering, like, what the heck is this guy talking about? I'm a Christian. Paul says, test yourself. Would you go through those questions that I mentioned to you? And I know that there's going to be Zoom calls afterwards. There's going to be phone calls. Man, 
I would love to talk to you about this stuff. Pastor would love to talk to you. Are you troubled in your soul? Do you know who Jesus is? Have you been born again? And there's lots of terms. Have you been saved? Have you been born again? Are you living for Jesus? Our desires to, at Mac Ave is to help you do that. That's the whole point of our existence. We want nothing else but to see people fall in love with Christ Jesus and to walk this straight and narrow path with us. You know, as Edith said in the beginning, man, move on down. We'd love to have you down here. We got a great zip code. So would you pray with me? Lord Jesus, your word says that you are the light. Your word says that you light our path, that we might see well. Lord Jesus, would you open all of our eyes, everybody who can hear these words, everybody in the congregation, the people that we're all praying for, friends, relatives, neighbors, city planners, politicians, pastors. Lord God, would you open our eyes, set aside those veils, Father God, that we could see clearly who Jesus is, that we can see the smiling face of God upon us, who gives us opportunity to become sons and daughters of the Most High. Lord, awaken in us a desire for your cross, for obedience, and to serve you. In Jesus' name.